0: I'm like, can you have the apple pie at Grandma's house at Christmas? And if your answer is no, we, we gotta unpack this because that's that's insane. Every athlete on the planet should be able to have apple pie at, at Christmas at Grandma's house. Like, um, you know, you're, you're not going to eat the whole pie every single night, but if you can not enjoy um, Christmas with your family and 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 have a little bit of a food indulgence, well. That, that's a big red flag for me. Again, I really enjoy those conversations with athletes and I'll try to adjust my style to to their background and, and to their needs and to their um, to their culture and, and develop those trusting relationships and, and work from there.
1: Well, a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. My name is Stephen. I'm delighted that you've joined us today. I'm a performance scientist by trade, having spent my career working with some of the best Elite athletes in the world and developing teams in the pursuit of high performance. And the idea behind this podcast is to lift back the curtain a little and explore the principles, the complexities, and the subtleties of performance so that we can better understand this thing that drives us to reach for more, for more achievement, and for the richer experience of climbing higher. And helping me explore some of these concepts are people who've achieved, been the driving force behind performance and some who've researched aspects of performance in real depth. So thanks very much for the positive comments about my musings on podcast episode 34. This area of graduate readiness to work has seemed to once again touch the nerve for either you, the student, uh, you, the emerging professional, or you, the leader, looking for people to add to your team. So I'm, I'm glad it's helped. This week, I return to the interview format where I speak to Trent Stellingworth, a performance nutritionist. I first met Trent at the 2008 World Indoor Championships in Valencia, where I was coaching and he was coaching. And there was this strange aberration where people were saying, Oh my God, there's two scientists coaching. What on earth is happening? Well, Trent has gone on to have a glittering career working at Nestle and the Canadian Sports Institute, where he straddles a role of of leading the nutrition work for the track and field team, but also leads the research and innovation work for the Canadian sports system. Trent is undoubtedly one of the leading applied performance nutritionists in the world, and possibly amongst one of the best practitioners in the world. Not that there's a league table, but he is certainly widely revered and recognised. Why is that? Well, you'll soon get a handle from this interview on his grasp of the subject area, his aspiration to the highest standards of work, but also his sensitivity with which he thinks both holistically and practically to create improvements for the people he works with. Trent Stallingworth, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hey, thanks for having me on, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Now, where are you at the moment? You're, you're on training camp. You're, you're away up in the hills, are you?
0: I am. I'm up in uh, 2,100 metres, uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. Uh, we have probably 20 or 25 uh, distance runners here, so I'm working with uh, Athletics Canada throughout the month of April uh, up here in Flagstaff.
1: And how long are you away for? What's your altitude protocol?
0: Uh, we're here about three and a half weeks. Um, uh, we found over the years that uh, in terms of early season racing, the stability of weather in California is pretty good. And it, uh, the races in May in California are of pretty good standard. So it's uh, it's nice to set them up here in Flagstaff in April. And uh, I think I've been here about a week and I've probably seen eight or nine different countries represented here in Flagstaff. So it's, uh, it, it's a hot spot for April for sure.
1: Yeah. So I was talking to a few track and field runners from the UK and uh, I think they were heading out early may so you'll you'll see some in the, in the next few weeks
0: there's a few up here already i've i've uh saw lish up here and uh yeah and a few others so uh actually just ran into mark Rollins on the track on saturday i know you know mark so um uh,
1: i love i loved working with mark and Haley Tullet and mike east and uh he we were just talking before we started there weren't we, we were just about how blunt uh people can be but he was he was just great he was just cuts the chase so just no nonsense tell it like it is just giving it beans
0: <laughs> yeah i've i've enjoyed uh mark's uh um relationship over over several years and he's always great to get sit down with and he'll just lay things out and i like laying things out so uh he's always nice to catch up on and we had an endurance conference uh, up in canada in november so i i pulled him up um as one of the coach speakers uh, we had andy jones over as well so a few brits and uh, yeah, he was great because the, the crowd was probably 70% coaches and 30% sports scientists. And um, he's just a salt of the earth guy. And um, we did a great Q&A with him and Andy. That that was just gold.
1: Look, it'd be really great to, I reckon we could probably record for hours here. Maybe we just do a, a <laughs> series of, of chats because I, I've long respected what you've been up to, particularly the, the balance that you strike between You're able to develop knowledge and science to a level of depth that that would go toe to toe with that most academics would be um, admirable of. Uh, But equally, you've got that hands-on practice. So the the dynamic there, I think, is puts you in a very unique position, which um, I'm keen to to explore. But would you just give us a little bit of an insight as to how you kind of started into this this journey, this world of of sports nutrition and sports science and, and supporting athletes?
0: Probably if there's one word that sets up my journey, it's, it's variability. And I, I would really inspire uh, any young practitioners coming through to look for variability in your career. And by variability, I mean, I've lived and worked or went to school in four different countries. Um, I think I was coached 20 years ago by five or six different running coaches Um, I've now probably worked with upwards of 40 different coaches across three or four different sports. Um, I think I've worked in about five or six different labs and collaborated with about 15 different researchers. And so, um, you know, my journey started in a small town in Canada and I was a decent little high school runner and I went to Cornell university to run track there. I was a miler and at Cornell, I majored in nutrition and minored in exercise science and, um, I came out of Cornell and was able to land in at the University of Guelph in Canada with uh, uh, Lawrence Spreet, Uh, Professor Spreet uh, has a long history of great muscle metabolism work, but also applied research and, you know, caffeine and performance and hockey performance and um, a nice breadth of mechanistic work, but also just um, good human applied research. And uh, while I was at Guelph, I, I did my coaching degrees and Um, there's a coach there named Dave Scott Thomas, who, um, is one of our best endurance coaches in Canada. And and he mentored me as a coach. Um, and I coached with the, uh, the Guelph program. Um, so Dave's group, for example, had, I think six or seven Olympians in Rio that came out of, out of his group. And, uh, yeah, it was a good formative time. I was doing my PhD. I was doing coach education and then, um uh hillary and i got married and moved off to luke van loon's lab in maastricht netherlands so worked there for a while and then a job opened up uh, to be the r d lead for power bar which at the time was owned by nestle and so hillary and i moved from the netherlands to switzerland where we were there for just over five years um That corporate experience was great in terms of leadership skills and professional development. Um, At the time, I was still consulting with Athletics Canada and athletes throughout that whole time period. I think the first event I went to was the 2006 Melbourne Games, in fact. Um, And then a job opened up in Victoria, British Columbia at one of our Canadian Sport Institutes, um, Canadian Sport Institute Pacific. And we, uh, Hillary and I, moved back to Canada to Victoria, British Columbia in 2011 and we've been here, uh, in Victoria ever since. Um, we have a couple of young boys now, two boys under the age of five and we own a house. So, um, although I, I preach variability at some point, um, you got to lay down some roots. And so oh, yeah. we're probably going to be in Victoria for, uh, for at least uh, a little time forward. Um, so yeah, that gives a little bit of background in trying to mix applied sports science with, with research. And it's, uh, it's certainly challenging at times, but, uh, when it's done right, there's. I, I. It's for me one of the greatest satisfactions. Um. I can get.
1: So there's a couple of things in there, to to potentially unpack there. So um, obviously your wife, Hillary Stellingworth, but Hillary Edmondson was that right? The that was that her was maiden her name. Yeah. Maiden name. I don't know how long she competed under that that uh, that name. I'm not quite sure whether um, some of the middle distance athletes I was working with overlapped with with Hillary, but. Um, that's probably where we met, actually, wasn't it? I think we met in Valencia. The world, world indoors. indoors, yeah. Who coaching Hillary then? You?
0: So um, throughout uh, Hillary's entire career, uh, Dave Scott Thomas at Guelph and myself um, co-coached Hillary. Um, ultimately, we and we, the three of us talked very open, very clearly. The buck stopped with Dave. However, uh, we lived in Switzerland and Dave was in Canada, or we lived in Victoria and Dave was across the country near Toronto in Guelph. And so ultimately, there were times of the year that I would write a lot of the program or adapt the program. Um, and it was a real collaborative effort. But ultimately, the responsibility, and I truly do believe that. Um, i It's rare that I've seen a co-coaching situation work. You can have assistant coaches, but I, I think there needs to be a sole person responsible for the program. And that was Dave. And and that was very purposeful because Hillary and I are married. We want to continue to be married. And <laughs> and, and high performance is not easy at times. So, uh, I believe at that time in Valencia, in fact, I was, um, uh, cause at the tail end of her career, I coached, uh, uh, um, Joe Mersch or Joe Fenn and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she would come over to Switzerland, live at our house for training stints. And I was coaching Joe and, um, cause at the time her coach OC had, um, or no AO sorry had uh, had cancer wasn't doing as well and she was looking for a shift and uh i mean there's there's an example of an athlete who i could probably say was one of the most talented female middle distance runners i've ever worked with but i think she'd had six compartment surgeries by the time i, I was working with her and and uh, we just we just couldn't figure out a way to 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 systematically and intelligently give her enough load on her legs to be able to get the training required to exploit that that natural talent, but um, yeah, so that uh, I think it was Joe that might have introduced us at that bar in Valencia. I I, I can't remember, but uh, maybe she was buzzing around there.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I remember Joe. I remember testing Joe back in the day, and she reminds me of an athlete that I wrote about in the book called Laura Fanukin, who you probably wouldn't have heard no. of, but he's probably the most talented athlete I've ever worked with. But she was just the wrong side. Of the line. Yeah. Uh, she didn't even have the, the moments that Joe had in the in the indoors where successful yeah. indoor career. Yeah. Uh she just we just couldn't keep her fit and yeah. well injury free. Yeah. But she had everything absolutely yeah. everything. And that's such a delicate line isn't it? Most people will see the people who got there and perhaps didn't want quite win but the people who are just on the wrong side of the line, I think Usain Bolt is just on the right side of the line of that yeah. sense of, <laughs> you don't see people have seen him turn up at the, the major competitions and perform. But you, what you haven't seen is his, his persistent injury problems that he's yeah. had to battle with probably from the limb length that makes him so brilliant.
0: Yeah, no. Yeah. You know, if there's a, a theme that comes out of our talk today is I, I get as much, um, personal relationships and satisfaction out of the successes as the athletes that are dedicated and come out slightly on the wrong side of the line. And in fact, you'd probably pull most athletes at the Olympics and I, I'd say 70 to 80% aren't satisfied with their Olympic outcome. And that's the reality is, you know, you have these Olympic dreams and those dreams are really challenging to, to, to make a reality. And uh, you know, it all comes down to if your whole self-worth is based on what your Olympic outcome is, you you better recheck and rethink because um, you better enjoy the journey more than the outcome because uh, especially in a sport like athletics where it's really competitive and uh, it's really hard to showcase your skills, it's um, it, it can be a tough, tough road. Yeah.
1: Uh, we're, just, we're just hitting mines of interesting topics here now can you ask you a little bit more about Hillary how did you meet Hillary and and how did you manage that that almost professional relationship whilst also having a personal uh, relationship too sure
0: yeah so Hillary and I grew up in this same small area of Canada uh, near London Ontario I'm from a town of 600 and she's from the big city of Sarnia which had I think 50,000 and um, I had to drive an hour one way to go to the closest track club and it, it was Sarnia Track and Field Club, and she was part of that track club. Uh, I'm five years older than Hillary, so in high school she was, I don't know, some girl <laughs> in the track club. And uh, I went off to university, and then at the tail end of university, when she um, uh, was coming through, um, uh, she was much, much, much better than than I was relatively at every stage of her career. Uh, Canadian junior champ, for example, and then went off to the University of Wisconsin um on a on a track and field scholarship to work with uh, peter tegan who's a uh was a long time really famous coach and um jerry schumacher was there at the time who's now the bowerman track club coach who's arguably probably one of the best groups in the in the world right now for endurance running and uh, she had a wonderful career there and, and so we started to date when she was in wisconsin i was at grad school then at guelph and would drive the 10 or 11 hour drive uh as much as i could back and forth and um yeah, it was it was a natural fit. Like we were both into running and both independent that we could do our own things and um by the time I was finishing up my PhD at Guelph, 5 years later, we got we got married that summer and um uh about halfway through her Wisconsin career, she started to spend the summers at Guelph with uh uh with me and she got a job locally and then she joined uh the trap club in Guelph and so that's when she met Dave Scott Thomas. And, um, so coming out of her Wisconsin university, she, she shifted to, to being primarily coached by Dave and myself and, uh, yeah, then her, her international career blossomed from there and she made a couple of Olympic teams. Um, when it came to our relationship, we were pretty clear and made really uh, clear expectations around, um, the situation of, of coaching the, uh, ultimately Dave was the primary coach that was very purposeful. Um, and I was, I was an assistant coach in helping, um, manage, uh, things if, if we were away, like we lived in Switzerland for a while or Victoria. And so, um, but it, but it was certainly challenging at times to, I was, I was primarily the one at almost all the training sessions and to, uh, to sometimes shut those off and come home and, try to have a, a normal relationship um it still is she's coaching now she's retired her her last race was in Rio we have a couple of kids and she coaches at the local university and yeah I would say uh you know a lot of chatter over dinner and evenings is around training and coaching and but um we're probably a little more liberal about that now in fact and because it's it's both okay. of our jobs as well and and it's both of our passions so wh- why wouldn't we talk about that and chew it up and um, et cetera, et cetera. So
1: I think it's, uh, I think it's a challenge for people, but also I think a lot of people with these kind of blended careers now where you're never off, you're always on in some ways. Uh, you take your, you naturally take your work home with you, you, regardless of whether you're sharing that, that responsibility.
0: You know, I, In the modern world with being able to be clicked in and checked in, um, it, it is challenging at times in the world of say coaching or research, because you've just nailed it. You're, you, you can choose to never be off ever. Um, like in, in research, you're going to be, if you retire at age 60, you're probably still going to write papers until you're 64 to get all the students through. Like you, you never have a to-do list that's, um, clear and so first you have to come to just grips with that if you're someone who likes to check off your to-do list just get rid of that mindset um, I, I'm jealous sometimes of our um, in some ways like our massage therapists or Kairos who who have a set schedule then they do their charting and they're done and um, but I also like the flexibility that that this position offers um, so my wife and I we try to work really hard to have some common um, goals so for example when I come home from work uh, and things are under control um, I I come in and uh, I'm there with with uh, Hillary and the kids and the boys helping with dinner and getting prepared and helping clean the table and getting baths done and getting the boys to bed and uh, I try not to check my phone or have my laptop on in that whole period Um, at 8 30 I might have a little check-in on work but uh, to be honest, I'm in bed most nights by 9.30 or 10 because uh, the one-year-old, you know, uh, the likelihood that he sleeps through the night is probably minimal. And the four-year-old likes to get up at uh, 6.30 in the morning. So um, so there you are. I've, I've had to shift things. So I do very little work in the evenings uh, other than maybe a quick check-in after the boys are in bed. And we, we try to structure it that way because y- you're right, you can – literally you can, if you want work 24 seven and you're never you're never going to be caught up. And so you you need to get rid of that mindset.
1: Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's interesting. But the potential difference there was, was that you, you might have had a responsibility attached to decisions. So you might be making a call. She might, have, she might have a completely different opinion. And whilst it's not necessarily about, uh, The heating bills or the mortgage or some of these responsibilities this is about the career decisions
0: yeah so i mean there are times where um my phone might vibrate and i know it's a pretty critical call and we're getting dinner ready and i'll be like hillary uh i'm gonna have to take this one and i and i will because it's it's a critical call but I, i would say that happens only once every couple of weeks or once a month um or if people call me at dinner I just don't answer. I just, I just leave the phone over there, but it might work vice versa for Hillary too. Um, like common sense needs to prevail. You know, like I think um, there's a responsibility to your relationship with your partner. There's a responsibility that you have with your kids There's a responsibility that you have with the athletes that you're working with and the coaches you're working with um, the level of urgency and the definition of the level of urgency might be different across all those. And so um that's where you need alignment in terms of what's what's actually urgent versus what can wait till tomorrow and and you can follow up then
1: yeah very good okay so back to this word of variability that sounds interesting so my what my sort of one reflection when people say what would you have done differently whilst you were studying i the, the my top tip is i would have read more broadly uh i would have sought uh inspiration and inputs from a whole vast field, as opposed to what you're encouraged to do is go for more depth, that you find the, the topic that you're interested in and then the subdomain and then the, the uh, key area, and then you go hard on that. Um, so talk to me a little bit about what that variability has given you uh, versus what has been a fairly traditional, not, well, not traditional, but a fairly linear route through postgrad, postdoc, and so on.
0: You know, you, you've mentioned depth and breadth, and I think managing those two things and thinking about those two things are important for everyone at different stages of their career. Um, if you want expertise, you do need to go deep sometimes, and you need to bury yourself in a certain topic area and really become. Uh, one of the experts around that topic area. So certainly uh, I'm trying to hang on to dear life for um, some areas of sports nutrition and endurance physiology as an expertise area and continue to read and actively read and research in those area. H-
1: hang on to dear life. That's an interesting phrase. Tell well, us what that, that's, how be, that's unrolling for you.
0: Because I'm now um, in much more leadership uh, uh, roles where uh, the breath is important. So I'm also the sports science, sports medicine lead for all of Athletics Canada. So, uh, you know, I have to know a little bit about a lot of things. I'm an expert generalist across a lot of things. The first one to raise my hand and say, I don't know that, but I can find the person that does know that that is the expert for you uh, in that area. Um, And so with the explosion of journals and research, uh, there's more than 400 papers a year in sports nutrition. I can't read 400 papers a year in sports nutrition. So uh plus i love endurance physiology and altitude physiology and environmental physiology so uh by hanging on for dear life it's it's actively reading and keeping up with the literature uh while having a couple of kids at home while you know coaching a little bit while trying to be a, a uh in a leadership position at our institute and in a leadership position with uh athletics canada so uh it it it's certainly challenging but um certainly the concept of scaffolding in terms of learning comes into play uh when you've got 20 30 years of depth in a research area um i i can burn through a paper pretty quick and scaffold things on onto my knowledge bank uh probably probably at three or four times faster than i used to when i was 20 years old and i would get that paper in front of me and it would take me two hours to get through it right so um so there's there's that balance of of, of depth and breadth there that's
1: interesting in the sense of you you still are motivated to stay abreast of the knowledge area, almost almost maintaining the pool of knowledge, and as it grows, trying to understand and grasp the the possibilities there, as opposed to what I think a lot of people will tend to do. Uh, I don't want to generalize too much, but I think this is a decent obs- stereotype. <laughs> is I have a need. I have a. I have been asked a question or I sense there's an opportunity, I now then go and find that knowledge and then bring that but that knowledge back and bring it forward to, to somebody?
0: Yeah, I would say I try to do a bit of both. I'm very um, purposeful in where I want to go deep on and stay up to speed on. So sports nutrition, endurance physiology. Uh, so just when I say endurance physiology, that's primarily uh, endurance periodization concepts. And, and altitude environment. Those are my three buckets that I really try to actively stay up to speed on. Um, it's really easy as a middle distance, um, running primarily physiologist to start to get pulled into, um, say biomechanical constraints of performance determinants. Um, I'm aware of like Peter Wayne's work and, and, and certainly some of the uh, concepts there, but If I start actively reading there, I'm going to have to give up something somewhere else. So instead, I'll do what you've just secondary um, mentioned. Oh, there's a need. Um, I've tried to create probably 20 or 30. I I don't call them a network. They're good friends or colleagues that I can reach out to and say, hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Um, uh, Because it's slightly outside of those three buckets that I'm trying to be deep in. And um, so that you end up with a really good network network uh, you know, where I can just pick up the phone and, um, uh, and I do try to do it initially, uh, by phone, not email, um, and just have a chat with someone around the world on, on, on a topic that's slightly outside of my area of expertise.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, um, sports nutrition background, Yes. but, and, and clearly an exercise physiologist or, or an exercise physiology interest because of the, the training background that you've got or, and or coaching, and altitude—is uh, that? Can I interpret that as you, you're sensing that as an opportunity to enhance performance, and therefore you've you've gravitated some of your interest into that area?
0: Yeah, great question. So when um, when we first moved to Switzerland, I don't know how many years ago that was. Uh, Saint Moritz was basically in our backyard. It was a it was a relatively short drive for a Canadian, four hours, and we're up at Saint Moritz. And when we landed in Lausanne. Um, uh the two-time world champ and now olympic champ from the women's 15 um uh, 100 mariam jamal lived a mile from us and she's ethiopian descent but ran for Bahrain, but but trained and, and worked um with a swiss coach um jean francois um who is a, a a great um older gentleman who was retired he was the um um he was the head of the IOC Museum for a bunch of years and the um, assistant meet director for the local Athletics uh, Diamond League. And so they went and used altitude two, three times a year. And and Jean-Francois had used altitude at that time. He was 65 years old. He'd used it for 20 or 30 years. And uh, yeah, you get up to St. Moritz and there's no better place on earth to be inspired than that place, just from a training perspective. And I'm embedded with some of the best african runners in the world like we had um durutu tulu join our training camps um uh, obviously Miriam was there um uh we had uh, Jean francois to learn from and he was a great teacher and so at that time i just got inspired by the environment to be honest it was less about the science it was like this is a really great place to train i can see how this is performance enhancing regardless of the oxygen content and um uh, or excuse me, the partial pressure of <laughs> of the uh, of the altitude. Um,
1: yeah, nice, no, nice. Yeah, we'll yeah. edit that out. <laughs> yeah.
0: So it was just from there, and and then things developed, and we've published a few papers now. Um, we'll have twenty to forty athletes show up every April here in Flagstaff, and um, two out of the last four years, we've run a study up here, and um, and then published it. We did an iron study that was just published in msse about two months ago that that was done two years ago an iron altitude study and um an energy availability altitude study uh in 2016 with uh 51 athletes across six countries so um yeah so i I would say that um i'm not overly published in altitude i think maybe five or six papers but um it's uh it it it, it is a research area of passion for me
1: fascinating stuff certainly one of those areas that look back on and some of the discussions with Barry Fudge and Jamie Pringle, probably over a decade now, 12 years ago, I was just thinking, you know what, if we've got to host the Olympics, what, what do we want to put our, um, our focus on? What, what do we want to go for? We really wanted to go to out alti- to go for altitude and hypoxia and, and nail that because it just exploit that opportunity rather than just kind of just go, Oh, some people respond. Some people don't. Oh, let's just leave it there. Um, and actually, work it out, problem solve it. Why do people respond? Why do other people have a bad response? Because that's clearly, that's really clearly not good. But it's clearly provoked the physiology.
0: Yeah, I know you nailed it. And uh, uh, I have a review paper that I'm a co-author on in review in Sports Medicine right now with uh, Inigo Majuka and Avish Sharma, and uh, and it, it's it's periodization for elite athletes from macro measure to micro in, in altitude. And, and we argue in there that if done properly, uh, we're not sure there's, there's, there are non-responders. Um, you just have to be really uh, careful and individualize your hypoxic response. And um, I don't know what, what, what you think, but my experience generally is um, if you have a sea level hammerhead the, the guy or the girl that just hammers everything, that's just pushing, 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 pushing. Um, they tend to be, regardless of all the lab tests you could do, if you just know those types of athletes, you better be bloody careful with them at altitude because they're the type types of ones that are going to be the non-responders because they just they go over the cliff, they're going to get sick, uh, they're going to overdo it, they're going to overcook it. So um, uh, if, if you can find and you have a relationship with that type of athletes to hold their psyche back a little bit, Um, then I don't know, my, my experience with altitude is that it, it can work for almost all athletes, um, if you're able to individualize it appropriately. Uh, Yeah, I, I I tend to think so. It's a potent stimulus, isn't it? It's a bit like threshold
1: training. You've got to be careful with it. And that's a good way to overtrain. It's a good way to burn out. Uh, therefore it's potent. Therefore, if you use it artfully, you can get the, get the curve going the right way. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, and interestingly, just how potentially, I suppose this comes into in-depth chat now about gene signaling and so on. But interestingly, over 10 years, seeing that what used to work now doesn't work as well. You just have to keep dialing it up. But then that, that works for, you know, that applies to overload, doesn't it? Where it didn't, didn't, it used to work. What got you to that particular point, Isn't your body's now got used to it and gone, whatever. And you now need to up the dose.
0: Yeah, it's the sigmoidal curve of adaptation, yeah. and we're, when you're working with the best DNA on the planet, you're you're way out on that very small incremental part of the curve, and um, you have to think creatively about about creating stimuli that's going to push them up, but not push them over the edge, and and that gets that that's quite challenging. Um, you know, the ironic bit with a lot of the literature is that it's um you know average university trained males who are in the steep part of the sigmoidal curve and so everything works um and so if you're reading the literature just you know and it's an average trained university male who doesn't have a menstrual cycle obviously um just just be just be aware like they have a lot of headroom to move into and therefore a lot of interventions uh, are going to work and um, some of the better done meta-analysis was split out trained versus sub-trained athletes Uh, there's one on bicarb where the effect size in in university males is 0.6 or 0.8 but the effect size in um in trained athletes is 0.2 it's it's four times lower and that that makes complete sense to me.
1: Now it's an interesting one in that, in that you it's really easy to pick up a study and well, not really easy it doesn't always fly but if you pick up a study and say this generally works a power breathe device will work for rowers generally but but it's a harder sound to say look, this, this is something that on average doesn't work for people, but we think it might work if we keep persisting at it, but we don't know yet. (laughs) We've got to work it out for you. We've got to problem solve it for you.
0: Yeah, no. And, uh, that's the art of an intervention with an elite athlete is, uh, the published data on the super elites is going to be very small. Um, you try to extend from the sub elites or recreationally trained data. Um, you look at the risk and reward, you look at it in combination with what else is going on in terms of their training program and their, their individualized history and, and and you try to make the best informed decision you can in a, in an open and transparent way with, with the coach being informed. And um, if they're a senior level headed athlete, I I love them at the table. I want them fully informed as well. And um, that, that's kind of how I, I approach interventions. Hmm.
1: All right. That's, that's interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to, Fly with a different type of question now, completely unfair hard tough, big hitting question um, are there any key concepts that you often refer to, key principles that you will you'll say yeah that 's a habit that 's a thing that happens, but we we haven 't observed it in the literature it hasn 't necessarily been been uh, captured in a, in a journal article you know that that concept where coaching is ahead of science and science is kind of keeping up any other key principles that you would refer to but you you know it but you it's not been written yeah so i think
0: the term for that is tacit knowledge some people use the term anecdotal knowledge but tacit knowledge is something where you know it but it just it hasn't been written and i think um any coach that's been in this game for more than 20 years oozes tacit knowledge, whether they realize it or not. You know, we were talking about like a Mark Rollins at, at the onset here. And uh, again, for young practitioners, just um, really good coaches can run experiments way quicker than we can. Um, they just might not have the structure around it to get the cleanest outcome or answers. And that's where you can come in and and work with that coach to say, OK, wh- what are your key principles uh, uh, to show that something works? Don't don't impose your principles on the coach find out from the coach what what are the principles what are the metrics that they decide uh, how do they write their training program on the weekend what metrics did they use to say this athlete's going to do this next week and start your conversation there with them and then you can build out and figure out ways to better measure what's going on and 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 I think the tacit knowledge from coaches is is very uh, underappreciated but you can see um, uh, concepts and Uh, principles that start to uh inform other decisions and so you know a classic example of that is say um steven siler's work in norway where he came over from i think a postdoc from texas and he started to observe what a lot of the norwegian cross-country skiers were doing Um, they weren't necessarily from a um, mechanistic perspective sure why why it worked but you know the concept of polarized training in in their field um was something that Stephen first, you know, started to describe and then measure, and now there's intervention studies. And, um, you know, I, I, I if I, if memory serves me correct, that was probably one of the the big interventions you had with with Mike East, um, in terms of slowing down some of his, uh, his off day runs to allow him to to bang harder and get more specificity on his track sessions. Um, so there's there's an example of something where uh, there was or coach coaching knowledge. You then got a physiologist involved who first descriptively um, identified it and, you know, now it's moved on and there's intervention studies to show that, um, you know, I don't believe in polarization for absolutely everyone. Um, marathoners live in that middle zone. <laughs> they, they, uh, they, they they need specificity that's not always on the high end, but um, I, as a principle, I, I do generally agree with it. So mm. I don't know if that answers your question in a roundabout way of what you're- Yeah,
1: yeah, with. it does. I mean- it- one of the key ideas that I often look for when when working with athletes is is well one of the common mistakes certainly in track and field um, or running per se or triathlon is that those those easy sessions turn into hard sessions. It says thirty minute easy run, so someone goes out for a thirty minute time trial instead. <laughs> so all the training doesn't necessarily get polarized; it gets concertinaed. So that's where perhaps running. You're, you have to limit your amount of training because of the forces you experience. You haven't got the same training volumes as a swimmer or a, or a cyclist. Um, so you make it tougher on your physiology. And that might work if you're part-time, but it doesn't work if you're full-time and you have uh, freedom to, to distribute your training, which I think is probably, I find that a better term, distributing your training. Vi- variability, a bit of variety in in what you're doing. Uh, challenging the body
0: yeah i agree you 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 hit a few things there that are really important that the neuromuscular load that runners uh face is significantly greater than swimmers rowers cyclists and uh so your top top marathoners are, are only physically able to run 10 or 12 hours a week maybe a bit more for for some but I mean that's one third of the amount of world class swimmers or triathletes or or rowers who can go twenty five and thirty or north of thirty hours a week and and it's it's just neuromuscular um, uh, uh, pounding and load and um, you know if you do some quick maths it's you know if you're a female and you run a hundred k a week you're you're at about ninety thousand steps a week you multiply that by body weight you multiply that by about two point eight um, kilograms per four step and you're well over 20 million kilograms of load like, like that. And, uh, when when you do the same mass on rowing, it, it, it actually adds up really nicely. Oh, okay. That's why they can do a 30 hour week. Um, so there, there's that element. I think, um, you know, the variability of training is incredibly important as, as a principle. Um, sometimes I think we, we overthink it and, uh, uh, systematic overload that allows physiological adaptation, but also, um, Uh, psychological and emotional achievement so they can see the journey (laughs) that's probably as important as some of the physiology of of really designing nice programs from week to week Um, you want to stretch them but not so far that um, uh, that they have a you know a failure in a workout or a complete failure in a workout Um, you know but conversely you may push them to failure now and again in a workout but yeah. so I think there's a lot of concepts you you you've laid laid down there that really good coaches um again they just tacitly know how to do that and they've experienced that over 20 30 40 years of coaching
1: when I talk to the guys that work in football they you know they, they'll say you know I, I'm not necessarily tra- designing this training program for a physical effect I just need to keep them engaged and, yeah. you know in the middle of the season when they're when they're tired and they're fractious and the competitions starting to hot up um, contract negotiations and started to happen. They just need to keep them engaged and making it fun or making it interesting uh, so that they're at least mindful and present in the in the session as opposed to it's the same as last week so we can measure it.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's spot on. And probably some of us have lost our way a little bit on that with too many metrics and too many measurements and too many um, outcomes. And sometimes, uh, you know, maybe we just have to ask the athletes, you know, on a scale of one to 10, was that fun? And, uh, <laughs> I don't yeah. see that on many, uh, yeah. reporting scales and it, it probably should be, should be on there because, uh, I don't know, I athletes that are, are happy and healthy are, are ones that, um, and consistent are the ones that perform the best. It, mm. it's that simple. Great
1: insight. So, um, so sports nutrition, that's, that's kind of your field, but with yeah. some, some other, other branches and so on. um, Tell us give us a little bit of the state of the nation where where is it at in terms of its growth it's been it's been quite rapid over the last uh, few decades and uh, certainly the the interest has has grown as much as anything I think because everyone eats so they've got an opinion about it It's a bit like pop psychology that uh, suddenly sleep science is popular because oh yeah I know everything about sleep because I do it every day or night so tell us where where is it at at the moment what's the what's the latest kind of insights and, and thoughts that you've got there?
0: Yeah, you've you've stolen uh, some of my words. I I, I love sports nutrition um, because I think uh, um, in in one sense, it's it can be incredibly impactful over time um, for an athlete to 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 and for life skills just to wade through that and and start to nail uh, those elements. But it's probably one of the more frustrating fields to work in as well. Exactly what you just said. um, Everyone will eat three to six times a day. And and so everyone's very experienced at eating. But just because you're experienced at something doesn't necessarily make um, make someone an expert in something. And, um, I, I joke around, I, I fly a lot. I'm very experienced at flying, but you don't want me at the front of the plane when it's time to land. And, um, and so, yeah, that's part of why nutrition is great because, uh, everyone, it, it's an absolute, um, um, requirement. Uh, but at the same time, um, it's frustrating because everyone, everyone can have an opinion and, and I'm okay with that. They should have an opinion. Um, Where nutrition is also the way I look at it is it's it's one of the uh, sports scientists, uh, sports science interventions that has the the absolute lowest barrier to entry. And by that, what I mean is if you just eat four or five times a day and it's foods that your great grandmother would recognize and um, you eat in close proximity to after training and you're rarely hungry. You're 95% there. The barrier to entry is incredibly low. Uh it it doesn't for a lot of athletes, if we can just get them there, that that's that's fine. That's that that's great success for them on sports nutrition. And they they can work their way around the kitchen and make lots of different options for meals. And uh and that's it. However, if I took an athlete and told them not to eat for three days, they would very quickly see the impact of nutrition on their performance. <laughs> So the barrier to entry is really low, but the impact can also be really high if you, uh, I I would never tell an athlete not to eat for three days, but I'll say that to them just to to make a provocative statement about about the impact that nutrition can have. Um, So most athletes will train 300 to 600 times a year. Most of them will eat 1,400 to 1,600 times a year. And so uh, nutrition tends not to be a eureka moment um, unless maybe it's a marathoner and Last week they did 30 or 35 kilometer progression run on water. And this week they did it on, on, say, a carb drink. Then they might have a eureka moment like, whoa, I felt really good off the back end of that. But generally it's a slow drip. It's Chinese water torture. It's just slow and steady. Um, You know, you're not going to light it up tomorrow just because you ate really healthy last night. But it's just something that um, over time might slowly decrease illness rates allow for consistency, decrease injury rates, um, et cetera, et cetera. So the other thing with nutrition that's incredibly frustrating, and uh, it's kind of the white elephant in the corner for a lot of folks, is measuring energy intake is about as accurate as trying to measure rain in a hurricane. It's a mess. And anyone that says they can do it is, on an individual level is – is disillusioned. Um, it is really challenging to accurately measure food intake, um, let alone micronutrient intake and everything else that follows. It's also really, really challenging to accurately measure energy expenditure, unless you're using dab- double-labeled water or you're in a metabolic chamber, but even then there's there's noise. And so uh, one of the areas that I think that is uh, emerging and continuing to emerge that's that's relatively new is um, are, are REDS, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. Um, again, I think it's another white elephant in the corner with a lot of systemic issues. And the frustrating thing with REDS is that if you have a large group population, you can get e- measure uh, energy intake a little bit um, more accurately because you have a large group. But we know that as little as 300 calories a day can make a significant outcome in REDS. And 300 calories is, you can't measure that on the individual level. And 300 calories on any single day is just fine if you're out. However, 300 calories out for the year, that's the month of March with no eating. That's 110,000 calories. So if you took, you know, again, if you told an athlete, like, uh, just don't eat for the month of March, well, that's what 300 calories is spread across the year. And so very subtle deficits in energy intake have profound outcomes on bone health immune function performance adaptation um and so the frustrating bit is we know on the group level that 300 calories count but on the individual level it's really challenging to measure that and so we use secondary indicators like stress fracture history sex hormone um levels like menstrual uh, cycle status in females or or testosterone in males um sex drive in males um Injury illness status, we use a bunch of secondary, more chronic measurements of energy availability to say, yeah, you're at high risk here Um, and there may be an issue. And so I'm biased. I've done a fair amount of research in this area, but I also think that um, especially in the endurance world, um, there's a lot of issues around gut health that I think are linked to energy availability. Um, issues around depression that I think are could be linked back to energy availability. And there, there's a lot of links that need a lot more science to be um, causation rather than correlation. Uh, so there's still a lot of work to be done. I don't want to overspeak the impact of it, but I, I, I do think it's a um, an important field that has exploded in the last five years or so. Sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs>
1: that was amazing. Okay, so let's unpack a bit of that. So, so you've got this key concept that of energy in energy out and if you could ha- get a, a an accurate handle on that then there would be an enormous potential to protect athletes but also get them into the, the you know positive adaptive state um so that's a real tightrope but you you're almost doing it blindfold uh so you're looking for those checks and balances of feeling the the secondary responses and presumably you know staying on the right right side of the line means that you might put on more body fat for example which has a negative effect on on performance so you're trying to feel your way along but without actually knowing whether you're right or not on top of which you've got variability in training load you've got periodized plans you've got uh, changes in the season you've got blocks of, of work you've got competition um as well as getting older <laughs> so a lot of moving parts there like tectonic plates to try and help help an athlete how do you how do you navigate that
0: yeah you've nailed the complexity there and i think um ultimately it's it's sitting down with the athlete and coach and using words that and concepts they understand um it's so, so rare I'll have an athlete do a three-day or four-day dietary food record, partly because it's almost impossible to measure accurately. And two, I don't want them to get over-obsessed with calorie counting. Um, I think that's dangerous. Um, we'll we'll talk about what their plates look like and how the plate might need to look different after a long session versus an easy run. Uh, we'll talk about, um, uh, sometimes we'll have them record a day just to look at the temporal structure of their eating in, in relationship to their training. Um, but it's not to quantify in terms of cal- caloric counts or anything like that. Um, it's really challenging and there's a hierarchy of risk that I have in my head that's not published yet. Like if you look at the reds consensus statement, um, there's different points, uh, like three points for this or two points for that. Like if you've had more than three stress fractures, it's a slightly higher risk, but the points are actually right now, um, allocated out actually pretty evenly, and I think that there's different hierarchy of risks. Um, for example, if you're an amenorrheic female who's had more than four stress fractures, um, those indicators are way more important than a, a recent change in body weight, which could be influenced by a thousand other things. And so, at least in my head, I, I try to look at risk factors and, and 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 try to have those conversations, which they can understand. Um, they, you know, they understand when they get a stress fracture or when they're amenorrheic. The other thing that you mentioned is that, um, in fact, contrary to what people understand or, or a lot of people understand or believe, the longer that you're in energy balance, very close to balance, uh, energy out, energy in, uh, the leaner athletes get over their career. And there's uh, both published papers on that. And I have a whole bunch of uh, longitudinal unpublished data on new versus amenorrheic females. And it's it's... The, the leanest females I've ever worked with are the ones with normal menstrual cycles who got pregnant like this. And, um, and, and it, it's something where they just get leaner and leaner and leaner and they're in really good energy, uh, energy balance. They, are, they aren't over. They aren't under. The other thing to think about at times, especially on the male side of things, is if you're in slight deficit and you have low testosterone, by eating more, you actually lean out. Because you increase the t- testosterone back up, and I know it's counterintuitive, but we've seen that repeatedly in, in in a lot of males. And I'll sit with them and say, like, listen, testosterone's on the banned substance list for a reason. We, you know, the 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 two best ways we can recover your testosterone are adjusting training load, which you don't want to do, and I don't want you to have to do that because you got to train a lot to be a world class endurance athlete. Or we can replace the energy balance. So let's just, let's start, just come with me on a journey. Let's start with just 300 calories a day and let's see how that does for two or three months. And there are, some of them will be a little bit, Oh, I'm going to gain weight. I'm like, ah, let's just see what happens. And, yeah. Okay.
1: Uh, Test it. Test yeah. and learn.
0: And a lot of times in three months later, they're the same weight, but leaner and yeah. they've been okay. healthier and not had the reoccurring bone injuries. And um, and so sometimes the intervention is just two or 300 calories. And so then I'll, I'll show them pictures of what that looks like. And for a lot of them in the day, that's actually a pretty easy ask. Um, they just have to be conscious to, 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 to push that extra two or 300 calories in, in every day. So mm. it's, it's complex, but, uh, I think I, I can't remember if we're recording or not. I love the complex cases. I, I, I find them fun. Uh, they can yes. be frustrating, but, um, Maybe that's part of the reason I like like working in this space of uh, of REDS as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I like that because it's um, what you're looking for. There is positive learning uh, and trialing. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily know whether it's uh, it, it's going to work, but let's find out. Let's yeah. find out if you're going to be in a better place as a consequence of this very small, low risk intervention uh, that could be highly preventative. You also tapped on uh, one interesting concept there where you were were saying, I don't necessarily want to to be the person or the, the cause of obsessive behaviors or getting into calorie counting. So if you're asking them to record food diaries or taking pictures of their meals a lot, you're talking there about those craft skills of knowing, I could be responsible potentially of sending that someone down a downward spiral uh, by by my thirst for understanding about their energy intake, for example. Um, and and a lot of nutrition is emotional, it's behavioral in that sense. How much do you you're thinking about the knowledge and the literature and thinking about the testosterone responses or sex hormone responses? you also got to be thinking about how do I communicate this to the, to, to that other person who's different from me, thinks differently from me, but food is, is a weighted
0: subject. It is. And you, you approach it with a lot of respect and humility that way. And, uh, living in Europe, you very immediately see that one of the defining features of every single country and culture is food. It's very different in Netherlands and Switzerland than Italy. And, uh, In North America, um, it's a little more of a a little more mixed, right? It's a melting pot of of foods here. But in in Europe, there's a real cultural identity to what you eat, how you eat, how you sit with your family and eat. And and it's it's sacred to people. And that's that's what's awesome about food. But it's also you have to come uh, at the table with an athlete and respect that, understand their background, understand their their journey. Um, And so it's 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 probably the most nuanced sports science out there um, because we could probably brainstorm 50 plus influencers of food intake and um, probably 40 of them are emotionally linked. Um, There's studies on um, if you're out to eat, whatever the first person orders actually influences a fair amount what subsequent orders tend to be. Like uh, the size the volumetrics is a bunch of research on um, the size of your plate and and how the food looks on that plate. Like, it, I mean, it's you eat food intake changes if you used a cold tub versus a hot tub. The, the hunger signals.
1: Okay. Similar so, to the research around swimmers. Correct. The post post yeah. uh, swim munchies.
0: Yeah, there's one paper. There's only one bloody paper stubs at all because I referenced it about five times in my career. That's looked mm. at the change of self-selected energy intake with a taper. Like, ah, like we need to do a better job there. So any, (laughs) any young practitioners out there looking for a project, look at self-selected food intake during taper when, when energy expenditure is coming down. I'm unaware of um, self-selected food intake versus intervention with an injury where energy expenditure almost goes to zero in athletes. Like there's just so much work that we need to do to better understand those relationships and, um, yeah, and and potentially with injury,
1: you've got a, co- a confounding factor of a feeling down,
0: depressed yeah.
1: potentially, uh, in the sense of you know when after a big competition or all the high, you get the low, and you you get people overeating yeah. or depressed. I'm gonna yep. I'm gonna take this out on the biscuits.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm I eat because I'm sad, and I'm sad because I eat. It's like mm-hmm. this <laughs> this bad spiral, and yeah. so. You know, there's a a concept or a term called orthorexia nervosa and orthorexia nervosa is an over obsession with clean eating and food. And uh, I've seen that coming up more and more and more with our athletes who who we want to be um, disciplined, who we want to be really cooperative. I don't like to use the word compliance, but cooperative. Um, We you know, we want those traits in our athletes, but they can also come too much and on on a downward spiral and so for orthorexia nervosa like i'm like can you have the apple pie at grandma's house at christmas and if your answer is no we we gotta unpack this because that's that's insane that's every athlete on the planet should be able to have apple pie at at christmas at grandma's house like um you know you're you're not going to eat the whole pie every single night but if you can't enjoy um christmas with your family and, and and have a little bit of a food indulgence well that that's a big red flag for me. Um, so it, it's yeah, it's working on those uh, those elements, and um, again, I really enjoy those conversations with athletes, and I'll try to adjust my style to to their background and, and to their needs and to their um, to their culture, and, and develop those trusting relationships, and and work from there.
1: Yeah, that's that's um, that's a fascinating area. Just that that emotional aspect of of food. Where, where do you kind of sit? Well, I might know the answer to this question, but in terms of the use of fads to illustrate, gain attention, gain traction, use those as hooks for getting buy-in from an athlete, there's there's a lot of fads in, in dietetics and nutrition. It seems like the, you know, if somebody's a vegan and they've won something then suddenly there's a a spike in google searches for vegan diets yeah what's your thoughts
0: with any new emerging outcome it's very difficult initially to know if it's going to if it's a fad or if it is actually going to develop a new uh, a scientific validated concept and being an early adopter of anything new in sports science has a risk that you're gonna jump onto a fad, which you don't want to versus, oh, I was an early adopter of X, Y, or Z. Um, so for example, uh, I'll use an, exa- an actual example. Um, I started to use beta alanine with some of our middle distance athletes already in 2006. So that's quite early. Now, the papers published came out of, uh, came through Roger, Professor Roger Harris, who also had success with creatine roger for part of his career worked at the karolinska institute where they hand out the nobel prize his reputation as a researcher is 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 pretty solid um i emailed and actually called roger to talk about this new beta alanine and carnosine and whether there's risks interestingly enough in that phone call he said uh the transporter for uh, beta alanine also uses taurine i suspect taurine in the muscle might drop a little he later proved that but he's like taurine's in such abundance i don't think it's going to be an issue so i did a lot of due diligence very early on to say yeah you know what this is something i think we can get a safe source it's tested let's give this a go and uh yeah and, and the data is now developed and, and and been pretty positive and there's meta-analysis and it's now on the ioc consensus um statement you know other fads um you know, someone like Louise Burke um, has worked her entire career to try to show that fat might improve endurance performance. She, 10, 15 years ago, as part of my PhD, we measured muscle biopsies to show fat adaptation actually um, inhibited PDH, which is an enzyme in glycolysis and an important enzyme for high performance intensity. And um, she would be the first to say, and I would as well, if, if there was a dietary intervention like keto that worked, we, we'd be all over it because it's almost a net zero game and cost for the athlete. They just got to shift their macronutrients. Um, I'm not discriminant on performance outcomes. I'll take any performance outcomes within the rules of sport that I'm able to easily deliver at a low cost. Like that's low hanging fruit. But again, the data has not supported that very well for, um, high intensity athletes. And so, um, and then the final bit is, um, with any fad, uh, Companies will absolutely exploit it and jump on it and try to create products, usually more expensive products, uh, and create narrative around um, such fads um, that is really consuming for or confusing for the consumer. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's it it's hard to know what's going to initially sometimes be a fad versus something that'll actually come out and be scientifically proven. And um, you know, a bunch of us jumped on really quickly on the uh, you know. The, the the beetroot stuff and now it, uh, the data if if you're north of a VO2 max of 65 it it does it doesn't seem to work um maybe the data is a bit stronger in elite rowers um but but yeah there's uh, it doesn't seem to hurt but uh, um you know there, there's there's something a bunch of us probably jumped on pretty quickly but on the other hand like it's a fruit and vegetable like we aren't yeah. doing any harm by increasing <laughs> beats in our athletes diet so yeah
1: okay so so an example like beta alanine early in its course that it was a bit funky it was a bit out there unproven we needed to know more so it's fairly it's potentially high risk but but a moderate return whereas be true okay well you know perhaps some dietary you know gut you know, responses, should we call it, then you've got this it's fairly low risk, but potentially moderate return. Um, I, I've tended over the years to be a bit of a laggard on some of these. I'll just wait and see. Um, I, and I think mainly I've taken that stance because if I just keep proposing new ideas all the time and then going, ah, no, actually they don't really work, I I lose Reputation, <laughs> You've got to be. You've got to be considered in your thought. And I, and um, certainly when when the ketone drink came out pre-London 2012, and it was all this secret thing, and it was going around the British system. And I got coaches in my ears saying, "Why haven't you told us about this?" And I'm like, "I have no thought that this is going to help you at all. Could it do any harm? Probably not. But it's another thing that would just get." annoying that i'm just trying to add more new ideas without necessarily the the evidence that this is a high priority in that sense
0: one of the biggest mistakes i've made in my career uh was as a young practitioner where um i was really excited about a thousand interventions and i knew about all these interventions and i had a younger coach who was also just really excited about interventions and we just threw the kitchen sink at this group of athletes and uh, I, I learned a lot from that I, I you know I, I I would give our the the athletes and the coach and myself a, maybe a c-plus or a b-minus at those olympics um but I tell you it was impossible to disentangle because we just did way too much with them way too quickly there's just way too many interventions from from altitude to different supplements to a different type of training that that that, that and now I'm much more measured um I I try to come at the level of the coach in terms of what their background is in terms of willingness of interventions. Let's think about it over an entire four year quad. What, what, what and where and when does it make sense to trial something where we can then put some extra measurement around it to see if we move move the needle in the right way or not. Um, because yeah, uh, you, you can brainstorm 50 interventions, but, um, you, you can't effectively deliver more than a handful, I think. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if if you've had similar experiences, but yeah, it's it's easy to get down the intervention rabbit hole and <laughs> and overdo it.
1: I mean, I've I've probably taken a uh, different tack over times. Is that sometimes when you've you've get you have momentum around something, then then you can do a bit of a yes and. So when we did some of the priming warm up um, work. Yep. That was that was really helpful for the psychologist, uh, for the nutritionist, for 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 the particular coach, because actually that's quite a sensitive period of time just before you perform. Yeah. So rocking up and throwing a load of stuff at it creates noise for yep. the athlete. And then I think the priming warm up was the one where the athlete went, "Great, I love this. This is a new plan. I'm going to use this. This is effective for me." To which then the psychologist said, "Well, if you're going to do that, then it might be worth you practicing that in, in training." So they were hooks that people could build upon, uh, a bit like bicarb. Well, if you're going to do bicarbonate soda, then you need to be hydrated, or you need to make sure you're ingesting the right nutrients at the same. So they, you could build on top of it.
0: Hey, listen, your your warm up paper. We use it all the time here. It's uh, uh <laughs> it, it's part it's part of our protocol that we go through within the spring and, and we'll test it in training um we'll even mimic the call room wait periods at certain times of yeah. athletes because of the 20 to 30 minute wait room uh that you'll have we'll we'll put put measurements around it we'll take some lactates did you overcook it did you undercook it did you have a long enough time for the lactate to come back down before so um yeah that piece of work is something that um uh, is great. And, and your, your comment about tacking on the other elements is, is spot on. It's, it's great that way. Well, um, so thanks for your yeah. contributions.
1: Yeah, thanks. That's, <laughs> that's all I'm going to include in the podcast. Just that bit, just <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. But um, that's,
0: but that's the sweet spot, right? Like when you, when you hear someone has actually taken science you've published and applied it somewhere else, um, well, first of all, like I'm happy if more than five people have read my papers, because uh, science. And, <laughs> but secondly, when you hear like, "Oh, wow, someone else is actually," because it's so applied and practical that someone can actually do that, and they're they're using my work, or uh, uh, not my work. It's it's always a group effort. Our work, man, does that is that that really makes me smile.
1: Well, I, I'll um. Th- I'll tell you a funny story about that and maybe offline with we'll, or I'll tell you another time about how we individualize from it. So, okay. I'm conscious of time actually, Trent. I could, again, I could talk for, for hours. This is a tricky one. I know you won't appreciate this. Um, are you a scientist or a practitioner?
0: I'm a practitioner who uses science as a tool to, to better measure what I'm doing. That's, I, I would say that. And the intersection of those two things are are really challenging because being a practitioner is a full time job and being a scientist is is a full time job. And so, um, what I try to when I'm doing various leadership bits at our um, Canadian Sport Institute Pacific or talking to young practitioners is, is I, I I try to encourage in my own work as a practitioner to do it such a standard that it's research grade. We're not going to have time to publish all this stuff or do case studies, and nor do we want to in some instances in terms of some competitive know-how. But our work will be and will aspire it to be research grade. And so um, I've had a lot of case studies published over my uh, career. Case studies are – they're not going to prove anything, but they're incredibly important for um, a, a glimpse into the elite. Um, process uh they're descriptive descriptive in na- nature they're correlative in nature they're not causative i i get all that um but i still think they have a place in the in the literature uh and so i would say i'm a practitioner who uses science as a as a tool to to create evidence for the interventions that i'm i'm pursuing i love that
1: that's a great that's a great answer and, and i wish perhaps i could flip that on its head and 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 hope for more researchers and scientists to aspire to the same in in the opposite direction of making their research applied, impactful, and accessible mm-hmm. and translatable to to the everyday person, whether that's an elite athlete or whether that's um, just the end user, who's this Who's this for?
0: It it is, and I, but I would encourage scientists as well to take a high degree, uh, an incredible degree of quality control in terms of some of their applied and practical measures. By that, what I mean is when you walk around ACSM. And there's now two or three days of ergogenic aid posters. Any Yahoo with a bike and a stopwatch can do performance measures. The barrier to entry to performance measures is as low as it gets. There's only five labs in the world that do muscle protein synthesis with phenylalanine tracers or deuterated tracers because it's so technically difficult and expensive. And so the quality control of ergogenic aid and performance posters I see at major competitions tends to be the worst there's there's some dubious and some really poorly done work. And so, um, you know, just spending um, hours and days and weeks to set up a really good performance time trial with minimal noise and circadian rhythms and standardization and no feedback. Like, that, that takes a lot of work and expertise to do really, really well. I, I'm proud that our lab does that well. Um, but we're, we're really anal on it. <laughs> so yes, I would encourage academics and, and others to do more applied research, but, um, but appreciate that the noise and variability of measuring performance is, is as challenging as, um, muscle protein synthesis, FSRs, I think so.
1: Mm. Fantastic. So, um, listen, what's, what's the next kind of level for you? What What's the next phase of 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 work and ambition on a personal level and professional level
0: for you, you know I'm, it's a great question. Um, I think sometimes our um, applied institutes have have the have our heads in the sand a little bit around what I'll call um, practitioner life cycles. So you know you can go to Harvard Business Review and read up on business life the life cycles and there's like four phases of a business life cycle and they're usually somewhere in 10 or 20 years chunks of business life cycles. And, and I think practitioner life cycles are more around four to six year chunks. A lot of really good practitioners, once they, they get into a new situation, a new sport or a new coach and are, um, all of us, um, the good ones, we all want to be innovative and we are innovative for four or five, six years. And then at some point, within that context of that sport or, or, or that with that coach, you, you start to feel a little less innovative and you're, it's a little more routine. And, um, you know, I, I think people start to then look for an exit plan, like, okay, what, what can I do now to re reinvent myself or re innovate myself? And so certainly at our Institute, we, we've started to look a little more carefully at, okay, this, you know, this practitioner has been with swimming for eight years. Let's have a heart to heart with them. And like, how are you doing? Do you need to maybe move sports. Do we need to think about a different career plan for you? Cause we expect that you're, if you're good, you're going to be looking for a new challenge. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm in that four to five year period now with athletics and, and, uh, we've moved back to Victoria in 2011. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always open to new things, but, I'm um, I'm also really satisfied in the groove groove that I I'm in right now. Um, you know we own a house. we got two young boys. My wife's now coaching track at the local university. There's huge synergies there. I'm up at flagstaff my um my family was just up here and and joined us for a while. Yes, I go off to work during the day, but I have dinners with them. I can tuck the boys in at night um so right now i I don't have anything radical on the horizon other than continue to to do research continue to work mainly with athletics i work a little bit with paratriathlon and mountain bike as well in canada as kind of a senior uh, physiology advisor and um yeah maybe find ways to better manage my timetable i would like to find ways to travel a little less with the boys at home now um but i think those are all doable in the foreseeable future so i have no you know radical mic drops here on anything new coming coming from me and but at the same time appreciate that there's a life cycle to to practitioners and and I mean you know you went through it yourself with your uh with your new business and transitioning away and being independent and um I'm sure that there's some um, the highs are high and the lows are low too uh, in terms of just trying to I could imagine trying to be independent and there's there's a lot of risk you take on yourself doing that so um yeah, we'll we'll see where my uh, journey takes me. I'm not sure yet. Fantastic.
1: Some some great aspirations. Not uh, under almost I'm hearing there reflecting on your own journey and the challenges uh but also the pressures that you're under and the natural time aspects of that, but also thinking about that with a motivation of supporting other people through a healthier career themselves than perhaps you had or pre- people before you.
0: Yeah, you know, I am i don't watch tv i don't watch netflix i i actually enjoy on a friday night working on a paper analyzing data i know that sounds crazy but i it it doesn't fatigue me it's a passion of mine and hillary you know she'll be watching some netflix or whatever on friday night and i i'll be in the room but i might be working on a data set or something and i've realized however um, i'm much more conscious about when i might flick out an email and um, i I tried to temper temper it on the weekends and in the evenings because um you know we have really great staff whose passions might be in different spots and i don't want them to think they need to be 24 7 staff that's unhealthy it's non-sustainable um part about being a sport practitioner 24 7 is um, self-care for at least eight or ten hours of that 24 7 a day and um it's it's exercising i still try to get out four or five days a week for for a run or for for uh for a mountain bike Um, it's, it's good sleep patterns. I, I, I aspire to that too, as, as well as you can with two boys under five. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's finding that, that, that rhythm, I, I think, uh, young in your career, I, I encourage people to burn pretty hard, uh, you know, maybe pre kids and, 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 uh, and just go for it. But then at a certain point, you also have to find a, a rhythm that's sustainable for you. And, um, I think periodize your work effort, efforts. There's times where things are going to be pretty full on. And then, um, there's times where I'll, I'll, pull back significantly. And, and so for the next two weeks at this training camp, the family's back home. Well, I'm going to burn really hard this two weeks to just get a bunch of stuff done so that when I get home, I can, I can pull back a lot and the students papers all be up to speed and, you know, all the projects are on top of it. And, um, I, I can take a few loo days from work and, uh, and spend some time at home with the kids.
1: Trent, I loved, loved ch- chatting to you. Loved your insights. I mean, we've covered everything there, haven't we? We've covered variability and finding balance, working with people, knowing stuff and doing stuff, <laughs> uh, coaching tacit knowledge, but i've I've been hungry for Grandma's apple pie throughout. So um, <laughs> there you go. So that's that's been brilliant. I, I love the the wisdom but also the practicality that that you're bringing to your work and and that you're championing for other people. So thank you so much, Trent. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me on, Steve. The conversation was great.
1: If you'd like to follow Trent on Twitter? Then he's on at t Stellingworth, t s t e double l i n g w e r double f. You can follow the supporting champions' work at support underscore champs, and me at Ingham underscore Steve. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube and subscribe through the website. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. It helps us promote some of the ideas and concepts that we feel are so valuable.